Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Ten Commandments, and we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Sex is Sacred. My message today is entitled, Sex is Sacred. I mean, what a strange thing to say. Sex is sacred. For a great many people, sex is anything but sacred. It's for them a powerful biological urge that must be satisfied. And of course, often it leads to ruin. And for some Christian people, their struggle with sexual desire often leads them to feelings of guilt and despair and and through their failure, leads them to feel that they have been abandoned by God. See, our society is filled with what we call sexual addictions. Men will talk about feeling ensnared by pornography. Women will talk about being ensnared by fantasy. Both men and women sometimes feel that there's some sexual thing, either in their past or in their present, that they so dearly hope that no one will ever find out. And some of you who are listening to me are suffering from a sexually transmitted disease. And some of you have witnessed the devastation of your marriage and of your family because of sex. And some of you have had an affair in your past, and the guilt of that moment is eating you up. And others have been sexually abused, and you feel violated and you're angry. And to you, sex is anything but sacred. Indeed, it's profane. If sex is a gift of God, why does this gift so often destroy people's lives? And we've been studying the Ten Commandments, and today... We will look at the seventh commandment, and I'm reading Exodus 20, verse 14, and it simply says, you shall not commit adultery. So have you ever wondered why it is that the seventh command seems to limit itself to adultery? So adultery, as you know, is the sin against the marriage covenant. That is to say, a married individual has sexual relations with someone who is not his or her spouse. That's adultery, betraying your marriage covenant. And strangely enough, Our society, which is so liberal in terms of blessing any sexual adventure, seems to agree on the prohibition against adultery. A recent Yale University study found that in Canada, 76% agree that adultery is morally unacceptable. And in the U.S., that number is higher. It's about 84%. You know, that might sound surprising to some, but it's true. Most North Americans, even today, still think that adultery is wrong. But why do they think it's wrong? And as strange as it is, that question is as important as the question of whether it's wrong. Psychology Today ran an article in what they called the real problem with adultery. Now, in that article, the author stated that he thought it was not the sex with someone who is not your spouse that is the problem. You might say, what? I mean, isn't that the very definition of adultery? Sex with someone who's not your spouse. Yeah, that's what it is. But listen to the rest of the article. The author thought that the problem was not the sex, but the betrayal of your partner. That is, you're lying to your partner. You're cheating on the promises that you've made to him or her. See, I think most people in our culture would agree. It's the broken promises that bother them, the lying and the cheating and the harm people feel. That's the problem, not the actual sex itself. Now, of course, some of that is true. It was the old Puritans who used to say that Satan was not called the father of adultery, but rather the father of lies. And the lying that always attends adultery is soul-destroying. The lie fills our lives with evil. No, no, we don't discount 
the truth that the matter of betrayal and lying is a substantial issue in the act of adultery. But it is important to state the Christian position on this matter at the outset. Historically and biblically, Christians have believed and taught that any sexual activity or desire outside of heterosexual marriage is sinful. That is to say, the sex in and of itself is an issue. But that brings us back to the seventh command. Why does the command then limit itself to adultery alone? If the sex itself is the issue, what about premarital sex or or sex between two people whose marriage has ended? What about homosexual sex or what about any sexual situation outside of marriage? So as you know, in terms of the sexual morality of our culture today, there are only two prohibitions. Number one, thou shalt not cheat on your significant other. That's the first command. And then the second, thou shalt make sure you have the full consent of the other before having sex with them. In our culture, those are the only two things that matter. So then back to the question. Why does the seventh commandment limit itself to adultery? Now, in order to understand that, we need to go back to a repeated and well-worn phrase that I have used throughout this series. The Ten Commandments are the basic form of God's universal laws. They are meant for all people at all times. Now, the rest of the Old Testament law works that matter out in relationship to ancient Israel, And then the New Testament helps us to understand that law for all people. So the Ten Commandments are the kernel, and the rest of the Bible works it out for us. So where do we begin? Well, I think the best place to begin is at the point of creation. You might be helped to remember that it was God who created sex. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, the Bible says the man and the woman in the original creation, in a world that was untouched by sin, were both naked and they felt no shame. The passage speaks about the man and the woman becoming one flesh, and that's an allusion to the sexual act. It means that in the sexual act, which is the act of marriage, there's this mysterious intermingling of two lives into one. It's never just a physical act. It's a profound spiritual act which melt two hearts into one. You know, it may be surprising to some, but God commends the sexual act of a husband and a wife in the law. Look, for instance, at Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. It says, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with the wife whom he has taken. Now, you and I can be quite sure that the the being happy part is not about telling jokes to each other. It's the sexual happiness they enjoy when they're young. Proverbs 5, 18 to 19 gives this counsel to married men. It says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. In fact, one entire book of the Bible, Song of Solomon, is a love poem celebrating the sexual love of a husband and a wife. And so the Bible speaks quite explicitly about a God who not only created two genders, but a God who does so for the sake of marriage. And within that estate, the Bible makes it clear that God smiles upon and urges married couples to be in a sexual relationship of joy with each other. 
But when sin entered the world, all things were twisted, and so, so was the sexual act. And so in order to prevent the harm that would come from the, the sinful use of the sexual act, the law placed boundaries around the sexual act. One of the places it did so was in Leviticus chapter 18. And there we find sexual relations prohibited between close relatives. There we find prohibitions against homosexuality. There we also find prohibitions against sex with an animal. And then after giving these prohibitions, Leviticus 18 then goes on to say, and I'm reading from verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So Leviticus 18, while still related to Israel, makes the statement that these laws, these these prohibitions against sex outside of marriage, they're universal laws. They're intended for all people. So again, we're left with a question. If that's true, if all sex outside of marriage is forbidden, why then does the seventh command limit itself to adultery? And the answer from the rest of the Old Testament should then be plain. Marriage was foundational to the creation. In ancient Israel, it was the family that arranged marriages. And so, it would be most uncommon for a person to be young and unmarried. And furthermore, according to Deuteronomy 22, verse 23 and following, if a man has sex with a betrothed woman or an engaged woman, and the tryst was consensual, both were to be stoned. But if it was not, the man alone was to be stoned. Don't you see? Marriage was assumed. When you were young, your parents arranged your marriage. Your task then was to learn to love your spouse, and a central feature of that love is to rejoice in one another. And from that joy, a new generation is formed. See, the Old Testament did not have, you know, the structure that we do. Great many singles, matchmaking websites, all sorts of sexual options. Well, what do we do in that kind of a culture? I mean, clearly, we have so much to discuss. You know, some things don't mix. Oil and water, plaids and polka dots. It's not that these couplings never occur, but our minds don't really readily pair them. The same holds true with our pains and joys, both expected, but we rarely consider them as simultaneous. But God adjusts our thinking. The Bible reminds us that joy can be found in trials and our tears can be turned into laughter. It's not instant or self-generating, but a matter of God's grace working within us, like gold refined in fire. Joy can be found in the midst of struggle. So to encourage you as our free gift this month, We want to send you a combo CD series from Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five joy-filled Laugh Again episodes. Joy in Tough Times, our free gift to you just for calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The New Testament carries on the assumption that that all sex is to be confined within marriage. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5. It says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. 
For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, living in a sexless marriage is contrary to the will of God for you. But you might say, well, look, it's my body, but, but that's precisely the point. It's not your body. God owns your body, and he has designated that in marriage, your body should be cared for and nurtured and loved by your spouse. That's what God wants, and that's why, by the way, it's, it's always wrong to make sexual demands of your partner. Sex is not about demands. It's about nurture and, and love and of giving. So let me say it again. Sex is sacred. It's a part of God's love gift to a husband and wife. So let's get back to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. That command is given to married couples. You shall not have sexual relations outside of your marriage. It's simple. As Proverbs 5, 17 to 18 says, let then, that is, the sexual act of marriage be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And the New Testament says the very same thing. For instance, listen to Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. The word for sexually immoral is the Greek word pornos, which means all sex outside of marriage. And so the marriage bed is the bed that is reserved for sexual intimacy. Any bed, and by bed we mean the bed of sexual activity, any bed is reserved only for marriage. Every once in a while I'll speak to a young man, maybe in their mid-twenties or so, and, and that man will confess to me, you know, he's struggling with sexual desires that are seeking to overwhelm him. And here's what I always say to him. I say, hmm, I wonder what God is saying to you. And then I answer that question by reading to him from 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And so I commend anyone who struggles with passion to do what the Scripture commends you to do, get married. Now, someone's going to say, well, I'm just not ready for that. And I usually respond by saying, well, clearly, your body is telling you, you're ready. And if you don't wish to marry, well, you haven't sinned, but then you know your task. Your task is to mortify your flesh, to be extremely strict with your body, and to put to death all sexual desires. And if you can't do that, then get ready to get married. See, I'll make a point here that if you think about it, it should be obvious. See, we know that in our culture, marriage is now delayed by about a decade from where it was only a generation ago. I was married when I was 22 and my wife was 21. If that seems young to you now, well, that's fine. But in my day, it was considered normal. All my friends had gotten married by 22. I was about in the middle of the pack. And let me make another point. You know, one of my daughters got married while she was in college, and when she wore her engagement ring to class, her prof told her in front of the class, why are you getting married? You're way too young. Why don't you just live with that guy for a while? Now, that is the wisdom of the world, and I am fascinated how often Christian people have bought into that perverse form of wisdom. Look, moms and dads, let me put it to you as directly as I can. Your sons and daughters have friends who are sexually active and are living together. 
And one of the ways we as Christians are different from them is that we commend our sons and daughters into a covenant of faithfulness in marriage. And if it should be said while they're way too young, let me add a bit of advice from my own experience. You know, Kathy and I love to say we grew up together. You know, we mean by that we were so young when we got married, we needed to mature, and we did, and we did that together. We were so young, we didn't know how to treat each other, so we had to repent to each other lots. But we learned about grace and about reconciliation and and the endless mercy of Christ in our marriage. Yeah, we grew up together, and that has bonded us together. Now, back to my point. When we delay marriage by a decade, we find that it is rare then to find men and women who approach the altar as virgins. And so in the minds of many, the sexual act is not equated to the act of marriage. And so it becomes so easy to betray the sexual act and not understand what God has prepared for us in the sexual act. Now, given this reality, let's compare that to the plain teaching of Scripture in the New Testament found in Ephesians 5 verse 3. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let's unpack that. Sexual immorality, that's that's the word porneia, all sexual activity outside of marriage. Impurity, well, that would include anything that is sexual, which is not necessarily sexual intimacy. That would include, well, in our day, things like pornography or improper physical contact between two people. That includes everything from giving someone a massage, uh, you know, to heavy petting or anything associated with intimacy. And finally, covetousness, well, that would have anything that, you know, that deals with inner desire, what we call lust today. You know, Kathy and I have a commitment in our marriage. We don't have friends with any one of the opposite sex unless we both have those friendships together. If you're someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, well, you can, you can extend that principle even further. Now, says the Scripture, this kind of activity must not be named among you. That is to say, no one should think of a Christian and then think of any sexual activity outside of the sacred covenant that God has ordained in the creation of marriage. And unfortunately, and this is the sad reality today, that's not the case. You know, even pastors now are frequently found in relationships that bring scandal to the cause of Christ. And it turns out this matter is named among us, and it's an indictment against the people of God. Now go forward to Ephesians 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In short, the people of God are made up of those who are sexually moral, pure, not covetous. So what do we learn from that? So let me suggest the things that we need to cling to and the things that we must reject. What do we cling to? We cling to this truth, that marriage is a relationship of lifelong fidelity between one man and one woman. Note the word lifelong, as long as we live, through sickness and health, through riches and poverty, for better, for worse, as long as we live. I will have you as my wife or you as my husband. You know, Kathy and I talk about growing old together. I tell her all the time, don't worry about your wrinkles because I'm growing my own at the same time and our wrinkles actually match. You see, we look like we belong together. That's because we do. We grew up together and we got old together. It's lifelong. Note also the word fidelity. It's faithful love. Sexual love, that's a sacred trust between us and it binds us uniquely together. But second, this reality means that we must flee from certain things. 
we must flee from anything that removes sex from the covenant of marriage. That includes sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, prostitution, casual sex, anything at all. For we determine that it is immoral to think of sex outside of the sacred covenant. Let's therefore get rid of these two great satanic deceptions. One is the deception that our sexual sins are no big deal. We need to hear God on this. Ephesians 5 verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming. It is a big deal. It's a breaking of the law of God, and he will prosecute the guilty. But let's also equally get rid of the second great satanic deception. And this is the deception that if you've sinned in this area, there can be no forgiveness. 1 John 1 verse 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hear me. Christ suffered and died. He bore the anger of God on your behalf for your sins. You can be forgiven. You can be restored. So don't despair. Put your hope in Christ. Christ is merciful. Look, he knows the blackness of your sin, but you need to know the greatness of his love and of his grace. Repent and run to him and ask him by the power of the Holy Spirit to live as Christ would have you live. John, I think this this issue is so relevant to today because I think, you know, if we lived according to, to Scripture, if we were biblical people uh, and, and took the counsel of in respect to sexuality and sex and those types of things, we likely wouldn't be in the place we are today or have been throughout history when we live outside of God's direction and purpose. Yeah, there are, I think, uh, ebbs and flows in uh, general cultures. Um, and there are cultures in the world in which um, the sexual act is largely thought of as the act of marriage. And, of course, we know that the culture in which we live in, that's not the case. But that accounts as well for the harm that has come to people's lives and the, 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 the charged atmosphere when we talk about sexuality in which so many accusations are leveled uh, because we know how sex has destroyed people. And I, and I think uh, Christians have something to say. You know, God made sex, but when he made it, it was like fire in the fireplace. I mean, you take it outside the fireplace, it's going to burn the house down. Uh, keep it within God's mandate. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for a continuation of the Ten Commandments series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This past month was Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. So on behalf of everyone at Back to the Bible Canada and our international partners, we want to express our appreciation for the gracious gifts that were given to sustain and grow the impact upon these global Bible teaching efforts. The international ministry programming and resources are sent to our partners every month, ensuring a consistent flow of excellence in trustworthy Bible teaching. So please continue to pray and continue to consider how you might support these international initiatives. So call today for more information on international monthly partnership or to offer your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.